2: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Brexit brings uncertainty and big gains for Fleet Street in the latest circulation figures, and there's a new paper that's, brace yourself, already making a profit. Are there good times ahead, or will reduced ad spends hit the press hard? Elsewhere, our pundits discuss the treatment of Channel 4 news reporter Fatima Manji, what little we know about the new culture secretary, and the latest attempt to bring US satire to Britain. Plus, a quiz that will leave your head spinning. That's all to come on today's Media podcast. And it's summer, it is, Honest, so we're on the roof terrace at the Hospital Club this Friday. Joining me this week, a man who needs an introduction, it's the managing director of TV indie Lemonade Money, it's Faraz Osman. Faraz, hello. Hi, Ollie, how are you? Very well, thank you. How many Pokemon have you caught this week?
0: Uh, I'm on level 8, and I've got 27, I think. I think. I need to double check. What's the most
2: exotically named one? There's some that do uh, sound like they I'm Firing it
0: up, but the problem is that whenever I fire it up, it crashes because it's a shitly made. Part app, but Ooh, <laughs> controversial. No, it is. No, it's not controversial. Trend everybody, of knows, the everybody knows. Everybody knows it's, it's a terribly designed app, but it's incredibly fun.
2: So speaks a man who clearly doesn't care about working for uh, Google or Nintendo. It's not with Google anymore, is it? And it's not really a Nintendo
0: product. It's built in unity it's not fun all the nerds will tell you don't build apps in unity they're all going to die
2: okay come back this isn't a tech podcast <laughs>
0: uh, what else is taking up your time for us uh we are in production of a new series of the award-winning four to the floor so uh, that's keeping the office very very busy uh we're actually doing a load of pitching at the moment which is which is actually quite surprising considering it's summer but it's uh, it's good there's a lot of work out there and uh, we're hoping to grab some of it with both hands in augmented reality or in actual life? No, we've talked about VR actually. Um, there's there's an ongoing debate about VR and if it's going to kind of create a new wave or if it's going to be like 3D and and be a bubble that that pops very quickly. Um, so we're looking into it. I'm not entirely convinced that we're going to see lots of people sitting in their living rooms wearing headsets and and immersing themselves that far. But for video games, I think it's amazing.
2: And alongside for us this week, a man who eats 12 Pokemon for breakfast. It is BuzzFeed special correspondent. James Ball. James, welcome to the Media Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, a debut, I believe.
1: Yep, first Unless appearance. You, I, was,
2: I just said trepidatiously, in case you were on a week when I wasn't presenting and I couldn't be asked to download. Welcome along. Um, I imagine you've been fairly busy <laughs> recently. You write about news and politics. It's Yeah, we, we kind of looked up, I think, about yesterday and realised
1: it was sort of four weeks since Brexit and uh, we'd kind of been working very much all the hours, but we, we're kind of now just slightly getting our, our reward. It was sort of last day of term yesterday, so... Uh, We had uh, hero puppies visiting the office, Uh, trainee guide dogs, literally just as a, you've all had a horrible month, here are some puppies. I mean, it's tricky. New media's great.
2: (laughs) It's tricky, though, isn't it? It, If you want to be a political journalist, if you want to work in that kind of world and you want to do it online, fast-paced, breaking news, then the stories we've been seeing over the last month, you know, Brexit, Trump, Nice, Turkey, new Prime Minister, Corbyn, everything... That's kind of the stuff people live for, but then it, I guess it just also gets a bit much.
1: Well, you get, you get no time to enjoy it. Like the political sort of stuff. We've had basically about 18 months of political news in three weeks. <laughs> and so you're just getting warmed up for a Tory leadership contest. You're digging around, you're planning how you'll do the features, the people around them. And then Andrew Ladsom drops out. And so you've got a new government in two days later, they're appointed the cabinet. And it's kind of like, hey, this is great. But News I'm guessing there weren't plenty of features on uh, Owen Smith ready to go. It's, I'm, I mean, you know, Owen Smith, the internet's darling. It's, uh, it's actually that amazingly there the are now meme artists starting to try and make Owen Smith memes because there are so many Corbyn memes, and they they're really they're
2: working with thin material, but they're getting there. Right. Let's let's stick with Brexit, sort of, for oh. our first story. No, only sort of, <laughs> um, because one of the uh, implications of Brexit has actually been a benefit to the press uh, something that we predicted in the last episode of course people are buying more papers at least in the short term Uh, all the national titles put on readers in June Putting the, the hard copies aside, even online, James, we've seen boosts as well for the Mail, for the Guardian, even the Telegraph website, more people going to online news as well. I mean, that is good news, isn't it, for the news industry?
1: I suspect it's a big sigh of relief, actually, as you've kind of... No one's really wanted to be talking about this, but website traffic hasn't really been going up anymore, and it's actually been sliding. If you look most months... The biggest few papers, you know, The Mail, The Guardian, even The Telegraph a bit, I think, have had month-on-month drops. Like, you're, you're not seeing this big sort of peak traffic era anymore. And so the fact that really big global news can move the dial still counts. But I suspect, you know, everyone's got to enjoy this while it lasts, but it's a month-long bounce. It's not really changed any of the underlying... Sort of online world or print world. And so, you know, at a risk of being the miserablest in the room, which is definitely my comfort zone. It kind of doesn't change that the floor has fallen out on print advertising and that circulation has got to trend down. Like It's a good month, but enjoy it while it lasts, but
2: it's one good month. And, and Brexit's going to have an impact on ad sales as well, isn't it? If British companies have less money, it's presumably in the short term only going to be European and American yeah, companies I mean, that are looking to yeah, advertise here. Yeah,
0: maybe. I, mean, I think that that's all going to come out in the wash. I think genuinely the reality is, is that no one really knows, which is, which is why you know the mar- markets never like uncertainty and i'm I'm you know getting all very boring about that whole thing, but it's it's the truth like no no one really knows you know you could argue that as the power falls you know, may have more brands coming in and and actually it may it may feel like they've got a bit more you know more more international brands have got a bit more of an opportunity to invest in this space don't know it's it's just too so tricky to say but what I, what I think is really interesting is about how the this has been pretty much the first big Vote. I mean, obviously there's there's a Scottish referendum, but it's been the first big vote that that Facebook and and social media has gone on from being you know that that whole thing that people talk about with the echo chamber is, has really been amplified here. I think a lot of people were very surprised with the result because well certainly with the Remain party because they all thought that all their friends were saying the same thing and it was it was going to happen and this is this is a fight that's been fought already and then when, it, when the result came through it demonstrated that there's literally a real divide in online with the way comment systems and, and social media exist now where you've got one camp that's saying one thing and another camp that's saying another thing and actually the two don't meet. But um, It's kind of funny because it just replicates print
1: really exactly I mean like you know you read the Daily Express you're never going to read anything good about uh, Brexit and you know you read you read the Mirror and the Guardian you're not going to read much of the- the opposite, so it's kind of it's weird how much the online echo chamber is the same as the other one. Well, except but that
2: that's not really true in the comments section, is it? If you go to a Guardian article about why we should remain in Europe, if you look at the comments to that, you know that's not going to be a lot of Guardianistas saying, yeah, right on, Owen Jones. So yeah, but no one comments. I mean, it's it's such, a tiny, f- no, a, it's a, such a, a tiny. That's not tiny fraction of people.
0: No, actually, I think it's a comment echo chamber. I think there are people that comment that comment on fifteen different websites. I think yeah. they go to the Guardian, then they go to the Daily Mail, then they go to lots of different places, and they they are you know. They Comment trolls effectively, I think there are very few people of the, of the the mainstream people that are are reading BuzzFeed are reading The Daily Mail are reading um, you know these these articles that are going on to then comment about ah, the article okay. they're spending their time reading it
1: I mean to, to jump back onto the advertising thing though I mean if, if you've seen the Enders report that's terrifying I mean they they reckon print advertising was going to go down about twelve to fifteen percent this year, the same next mm. that was before now they reckon two years of twenty percent falling. I mean, that is nasty.
2: At which point you have to look at the alternative solutions for these traditional organisations to make money. Uh, The Guardian has been taking the opportunity to solicit paying members. Uh, According to an all-star email sent by the editor, Kath Viner, that's been going quite well. Uh, They've been getting more sign-ups than any other single day on the Friday after the Brexit vote. Do you think that will ever mitigate the, the drop in ad spend?
1: I mean, you've got to try a lot of different streams, you know. I think any time anyone's tried to go, this will be the answer, it it hasn't been it. You know, video ads at one point, we've got to save everything, and then everyone realised video takes quite a while to produce and is expensive. It's not the one thing, it's got to be online display, that kind of hasn't quite worked. So it's got to be a little bit of a lot of stuff, and you know, membership gives some revenue, and I think it's giving them a way to do a very, very soft, slight paywall with members-only content, and I suspect we're going to see a a fair bit more of that from them and try and kind of give it a bit of an editorial offer as well as, as just sort of the donations model.
0: I th- I think it's a, it's a strong idea actually. I think they've taken they've taken hints from what Wikipedia do and and you know there's an appeal of like you know if you value this content then you've got to help us pay for it which which I think Wikipedia pop up every so often you kind of go oh you know you use this every day you've never thought about helping us actually make it. So so I think that they've taken lessons from that. But what I think will be really telling and and I hope that the Guardian are setting themselves up for this but but the uh, the App Store for the Apple App Store is going to change soon which will allow for uh, subscriptions and and I think that their team themselves up to be in a good position for that where you would get the content for free and then if you want enhanced content you can pay a subscription model yeah. and if Apple are saying that that's the future of the App Store and the Guardian are, are in a place where they are, um, are, are moving towards subscriptions rather than paywalls we, we could see that being a very successful model.
2: Or it could be uh, that the future of the press is in pop-up newspapers. Um, there is evidence to back this up. This week, the launch—I'm laughing as I say it because it seems ridiculous—but it's working apparently. The launch of the new European. Uh, for as what is the new European? It's a newspaper for for remainers, I guess. Is
0: is kind of what it's what it's classed as. It's tasting kind the 49% of people who who are upset or 48%. Let's not have an agenda here for us. Let's play the numbers straight. Is it? running up? 48.2%. 48.2%. percent let Bias, uh, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's, a, it's it's a paper for the forty-eight percent. It's it's an interesting idea, and actually, if you look at some of the papers that uh, how they classically uh, yeah, no, will, uh, were created, they generally were created out of a, p- a political movement, and um, and this is our generation's political movement. So it's not surprising that a, the European exists. It feels like it's a magazine idea rather than a newspaper idea. So it, it, you know, if it came out as a monthly, like New Statesman or. Uh, economist piece that, that I think it might have it might have some longevity to it but it's an interesting idea I haven't seen it if I'm being brutally honest, I've not seen it on a newsstand either. Have you seen it around? James? I,
1: I have. I've, and we we've actually bought in the office both copies. Um, BuzzFeed buys newspapers. We actually we have newspaper Bloody delivery. Hell. So not I, tell Mr. Peretti. I, it's to like comfort. I think the the old people in the office, which is anyone <laughs> over about 28, it's just like a little comfort blanket. But I mean, I'm completely baffled by it. I, I quite like it. You know, I I live in Islington. Of course, I like it. Um, but. The 48% we've generally kind of gone are sort of liberal, they're urban, they're younger. This is not people who are going to get a lifelong newspaper habit. And so I I think it's quite cute. I think it's quite a good idea. It's editorially. It it looks all right, Um, but... I mean, they say it makes a profit. It's selling, they reckon, 40000 at two quid a copy. It's mainly a cover price proposition. So that's, what, one hundred grand a week? You're not going to make that much off
2: that, are you? But what the they here, Archent, the publishers, are saying this proves is the case for pop-up newspapers, that if you capture the national mood and you get out there quickly with a quick release, and I suppose this would work the same with a TV programme or anything, wouldn't it, that you you can capitalise on that.
1: I I love the pop-up idea. I just don't know why we're still printing it onto a dead tree. I just, it's never going to connect with certainly I'm probably about as young as any newspaper sort of generation is ever going to be able to grab you're not going to get today's 21 year olds into a newspaper habit you might get them into paying for content you certainly might get them into quality content you're not going to get them into papers.
2: So I don't know why we have to still keep printing things. Do you remember for us when the routine was the Funday Times? Funday
0: Times, it was the best, wasn't it the best? Fun day well, times I think it was just a pun on its own made it the best, wasn't
2: it? It's a bit like whoever came up with that idea was a genius. Uh, let's stay with the press for one more story. Uh, the investigative news site Exaro closed down on Wednesday. Uh, this was days after their owner, News Sparta, had maintained they were open for business in an interview with Press Gazette. Uh, they just sacked the site's editor. Uh, James, tell us a bit about Exaro for those who haven't actually ever logged on. I mean, they basically do investigations, don't they?
1: Yeah, and I mean, exclusively investigations, and they never really hit any kind of actual revenue model, but they hired some sort of pretty decent people, you know, especially David Henke, sort of formerly of The Guardian. It was run by Mark Watts. I mean, they're they're known for the child sex abuse stuff, and I think they actually drew a fair bit of criticism for some of how they did that. It was almost... uh, campaign group in places but when they started it they had these ideas that it was also going to run almost like a data agency so they were trying to build this big insolvency database and hired a bunch of sort of 21 year old investigative journalists sorry like data journalists to build this thing and then just never turned it into a product and then I think almost they were a victim of their own big story because it took all their attention it was a complex thing and so it turned almost into something more like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, kind of something that's using money to produce sort of investigative content but never building a business around it. So it's it's always sad to see something close, but, I
2: mean, they really, they had no model at all. Do you think that's particular to the internet for us? Because in telly, and I know you do multi-platform stuff, but predominantly you're a TV company, that's not how it works, is it? Like right from the beginning, if you found an indie, you have to tell investors and you have to tell people, this is our business model. This is how we plan to make money. Somehow, if, if your business model revolves around the internet, there's still this feeling of, yeah, but one day Bill Gates will buy it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that
0: new media startups have, have gone around the idea of building an audience first, and, and then kind of figuring out what a revenue model is second, which which has worked for a lot of for a lot of companies in that space. But I think when it comes to content, you know, you have to build the content first, and and, and then get an audience afterwards. It's that's that's the model that we're in. It's you know, we need to make quality products that people want to come and watch and and listen to or read or whatever it might be, and and that's where we get our audience from. So if that's not quality and you, it's not clear as to what your proposition is there, then you never going to get your audience and and that's it's i guess it's might be a little bit neater more than anything else Um, you know i'd love to run a business where where we could just have an idea and and just run with it and not worry about the revenue stream but but as as was mentioned making video is expensive and we need to make sure that we have customers for
2: it sounds like the queen's about to drop out bloomers and all from the helicopter above us but (laughs) uh, just whilst uh, we're on this subject james were you one of those people who did actually read Exactly, would you be sad to see it go in terms of actually the journalism you were reading, or did you never read really it, it? Actually, I, I have
1: to say, I was—I felt a bit uncomfortable towards a later stage. I think they did some very good and valuable work on the child sex exploitation story, but it felt, perhaps to me, like it editorially started to cross a little towards witch hunting. And I think, you know, some of the people where the police then completely cleared them, there was a real reticence to drop back and almost. it it got a little conspiratorial and I think maybe that hurts sort of the other good work that they've done and were doing in that you know, if you cross over it then hurts your credibility on other stories. So I think they they tackled some really tough issues where people sort of don't like to tread and they deserve a lot of credit for that but I think they'd ended up in quite an uh, uncomfortable position editorially and with no model so no, I,
2: I think, you know good on them for trying. Okay, Toothbrush, check. Microphone, check. Novelty T-shirt with the phrase, It's the death of linear television, written on the back and front, check. Oh, hello, listener. Didn't see you there. Uh, You just caught me preparing my overnight bag for the Edinburgh International Television Festival. Just a few weeks to go. The media podcast will be there, of course. Maybe you will be too. Come and say hi. I'll be easy to spot. The T-shirt's bright yellow. It's our biggest show of the year. And as such, we love to push the boat out. Big guests, more interviews, and a couple of days to make the show. What a luxury. If you can't be at Edinburgh this year, for whatever reason, we're going to make a show that feels like you're there. The most talked about sessions, the best guests, plus the latest gossip and expert analysis. All we ask in return is that you take out a voluntary subscription, a few quid a month, so we can plan big shows like that and get them to you quickly uh, and sleep in actual beds to donate and have your name on the credits of the next edition of the podcast go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate that's themediapodcast.com slash dedicate thanks now back to the show right let's cover the other stories doing the rounds this week channel 4 and itn have complained to ipso about kelvin mckenzie's comments In The Sun, uh, his column published on Monday asked why the award-winning reporter Fatima Manji was covering the deadly attack in Nice last week from the Channel 4 studios. In Mackenzie's article, he asked, was it appropriate for her to be on camera when there had been yet another shocking slaughter by a Muslim? Uh, Manji later retorted in an opinion piece uh, pointedly for the Liverpool Echo Uh, No fan of The Sun or Kelvin McKenzie, of course. Uh, Quote, the truth, I confess, I pissed on Kelvin McKenzie's apparent ambitions to force anyone who looks a little different off our screens, and I'll keep doing it. Uh, Now, Faraz, you're a Muslim, so obviously not allowed to have an opinion on this because it's about Muslims. Uh, seems to be the logic of Kelvin McKenzie's thoughts here. Um, uh, What do you make
0: of all of this? Well, there's a few things I think about this. Firstly, it's, it's obviously utterly ludicrous. The idea that Kelvin McKenzie is, is in any way <laughs> suggesting that he has any authority in, in what makes ethical journalism and, and uh, is, is obviously laudable with, with things that he's done in his past. And then in addition to that, there, there's, a, there's a kind of almost level of stupidity about the fact that you know, Muslims are, are underrepresented in, in news journalism, there, there are too few of them and, and they should be encouraged and not, not have kind of white middle class people who have run newspapers such a long time suggesting that they shouldn't have opportunities and reporting big news stories it's just absolutely awful but in addition to that, there is also a, a feeling for me that we're getting to this point with, and you know, it's obviously, it's obviously easy to draw parallels to what's going on with Donald Trump and what's going on with Louise Mensch and what's going on with um, uh, I've forgotten her name what's her name? Daily Mail columnist, Katie Hopkins. Oh, you know what? There's a really nice moment where I forgot Katie Hopkins' name there for a split second and now I've remembered it as well. But these people are writing things for sensationalism to get... It's clickbait, is all it is. This is clickbait and, and it, will, it will pass and it will, be a, it will be an outrage and then we'll forget about it and, and we'll go on to the next thing. And this, this just feels like another one of those things where it's like, let's outrage everybody and let's get loads of people kind of giving me lots of attention and therefore buying my newspaper reading my article. Um, and then it kind of goes around in that cycle again. The the most terrible thing is, though, is that, you know, what damage is this going to cause? We cannot be discouraging a diversity of voices in news journalism, and, and that's exactly what's going to happen here.
2: I suppose you could make the case though in much softer tones than Calvin McKenzie did that it's naive of Channel 4 News to pretend that it isn't a statement not on this particular issue by the way of, of Islamic terrorism but it, but it isn't making a statement to put a woman in a headscarf fronting a news programme no, that and that is, that, a, that statement. is a statement yeah, it's, it's a, a positive statement, statement. Yes. it's exactly
0: what should happen but, like... it, but it
2: is a political statement and they could acknowledge at least that well mean in the same way that you would argue that Trevor McDonald was a political
0: statement about him being a, a black anchor on, sure. on the News at 10 when ITV did that and if anybody wants to suggest to me that, that doing that was a bad idea in, in the 80s you know I'm happy to to throw a drink over you later on—it's like <laughs> it's, it's just—it's just absolute lunacy—and and I think the problem that we have is you know going back to to what I was saying earlier about how. Um, you know, Muslims are underrepresented and you know, a lot of diversity is underrepresented in different ways. You know, They have an underrepresentation of, of the disabled community, of an underrepresentation of, of the Chinese community and of the black community when it comes to mainstream news, uh, journalism. So Channel 4 doing this is a, is a good, positive thing. And it's particularly important when, let's be honest, there are a significant amount of negative news stories about Muslims that happen on the news. And having that delivered by people that are from a more diverse workforce suggests that there are people from the other side as well that you, know, you know we the, the figures are not point 0001% of the muslim community have any sort of sympathy with with this you know these these terrorist atrocities. So we need to show more positive faces of that faith, and and likewise across all communities. And if, if
1: you want to jump on Calvin McKenzie's logic as well, you know, a someone of the same ethnic group as a violent attacker shouldn't report on it. You're pretty much going to have to fire every white man in news. Because well, and and you would have to take your point for you'd,
2: you'd have had to have said that Trevor McDonald could never have reported on an African warlord. You know, it's it's exactly. but,
1: but you know, most most murders, men, like and most of them white. Like the the logic is just bafflingly incoherent as well as racist and unpleasant I mean it's just I don't I think if Kelvin McKenzie wants to sort of do idiotic throwbacks to 80s racism that's up to him you know he did most of it in the 80s too I think the questions are for the Sun's editors you know for Tony Gallagher and his team why did they publish it? Why are they trying to stand by it? Because there is... I just cannot comprehend are how so will well Are they ever. standing
2: by it? No comment, they've said. That's yeah, not which
0: standing is, which, by which it. From, which, from The Sun's perspective, as a business, which is, kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about Brexit, this is the problem that we have at the moment with news journalism, that actually, if you're going to run it as a business... What Kelvin McKenzie said and what Kelvin McKenzie did means that we're talking about it here, and unfortunately that means that a lot of people are going to go and read that article and there's going to be lots of advertising based around it.
2: It makes business sense to be outrageous like this, and that's a problem. Let's talk about Channel 4 News and their response then. James, it seems they actually asked the Liverpool Echo to feature Manji's column. Was that a good idea? That is politically loaded as well. Yes,
1: I I mean, Channel 4 News have always been a little bit more willing to tweak the tale and sort of, you know, be a little bit bolshy sometimes. And I think that's sort of part of the joy of the broadcast. But I think if they'd have done anything corporate, if they'd have tried something like a sudden no comment or one high-handed statement, it would have been a really bad signal that um, Fatima was out on her own. And I actually think they've been really commendable in coming out absolutely full-throated. Defending the integrity of their reporter and her right to be on air, and I think if they hadn't have done it energetically, it would have been almost a form of complicity. I, so I think they've absolutely been the right, done the right thing to stand by their staff very visibly because I think when you do have such issues, getting diversity in newsrooms and getting the news the people who sort of tell the news to look like the country, To not back someone who's kind of in that position really visibly sends a horrible signal. And so, yeah, maybe it's a bit cheeky. Maybe it's sort of, I could see it annoying a traditionalist or two who feels he should
2: be very buttoned down and adult. But no, screw it. And for us, do you agree with that just from the point of view of if you were running Channel 4 News, would you be taking this, not on this issue, but this line of uh, we're neutral in broadcast, but in non-broadcast media we have Jon Snow ranting about Gaza or in this case video blogs and articles defending strongly Fatima, it does get clickbait as well, but it, it does slightly undermine their neutrality perhaps
0: when they're on air. Well, I think there's, there's two things to unpack there. I think the, the first is that, uh, and, and possibly the most important, is that uh, Channel 4 News have a responsibility to their staff and ensuring that, that they are um, you know, well looked after. This is, you, know, you are a face of, 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 a, uh, of a brand, and it's important that, that they take that with a level of respect and, and ensure that those people are protected when they're attacked, and, and this is exactly what's happened here. So I think that Channel 4 need to do everything that they can to ensure that both her as an individual and the wider community and their audience are, are, are
2: correctly... But on the question uh, of neutrality, to, you know, if, if Kathy Newman came out and made... This seems somewhat <laughs> unlikely based on what she's done this week, but if she came out and made a, a very strongly pro-Corbyn video on the internet, is that OK.
0: Well, I think that we, we have to allow journalists to have their own voice, and we can't stop that now. With, with social media existing, the idea that once you sign up to be a journalist for a broadcast news network, it means that you no longer can have an opinion, that's just not viable. And you can either put your fingers in your ears and, and ignore it, or you can you, know, you can just allow that to happen and allow people to have their own characters. But the BBC that, don't, do they,
2: basically? Your BBC News yeah, reports th- you have to be bland off-screen unless you're in Strictly Come Dancing. You can't yeah. talk about <laughs> politics. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think that that's part that's of the problem with with the BBC
0: and, and how they can continue to, to move their news journalism forward and, and, and you know they are respected for their impartiality that's why you go to them but the reality is, is that Channel 4 as a brand, as a news brand is respected because it has that level of character that means that you continue to go back to it as a result of it. So I think it's it's it shouldn't be the same across the board and having and that's why we are blessed in this country to have that plurality of media but, but it is I think in this instance it's absolutely necessary and I would hope and I would say this I would hope if the same thing happened to a... Like, my cousin's a journalist and she's done a lot of work for the BBC. If she was attacked like this, I I would hope that the BBC would come out and defend her just as strongly as Channel 4 have in this instance, because we should not be leaving these people out into the lurch. They should feel confident about the job that they do and and not be
2: demonised and attacked along the way. Let's move on to talk about the new Culture Secretary, Karen Bradley. Uh, Not a name that many of us were whispering about before. Uh, James, who is she?
1: So, I mean... It's a big promotion for her and it's a good sign that Theresa May is very, very loyal to her Home Office ministers because, I mean, Karen Bradley was a very junior minister. She wasn't even a minister of state in the Home Office. She came up through the whips and did sort of two years in the Home Office I, I actually I, I looked up her record in Hansard when she was appointed um, she's never once said the word BBC in Parliament and uh, she's referred to Channel 4 precisely once when she was answering a question about Yarl's Wood. Um, <laughs> and so it's not as if there's anything to point to to say she has a deep and abiding interest in uh, culture media or sport or uh, regulating any of them so it feels a little bit like she's been given the fun cabinet job as a kind of reward for loyalty you know very very few people from the home office failed to get in the cabinet so yes it, it suggests perhaps that Theresa May doesn't have huge plans or ambitions for something she wants to accomplish in uh, D- DCMS. Uh, I may end up regretting this, but it feels as if she just wants to steady as she goes, I have other things to focus on right now
2: agenda. And actually, for as that might mean the media breathes a sigh of relief uh, after the last year waiting to see what Whittingdale <laughs> was going to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's a... Collective cheer
0: went up when uh, when John Whittingdale left this post. I think mean, there are very few fans of his within, particularly in the broadcast sector. Um, so so that that I guess is a is a good thing. I, I think that you know what we need to do. What we need to look at is whether or not this signals the idea that. There was almost almost too much meddling in, in that space in a, in a time when there are concerns around the economy, there are concerns obviously around Brexit, there are concerns around the NHS, there are concerns around the police force, there are concerns around the prison service. Do, you know, do we also need to be starting a fight uh, with, with, the media, with, with the media world as well? Um, and, and actually, if you look at media and sport in particular, that, that department is, is a very positive force. For Britain right now, and as we come up to the Olympics, I mean, it wasn't that positive <laughs> during the Euros, but as, as we come up to the Olympics, I, I think it will give a bit of a bounce um, in in the sense of uh, in the sense of kind of British pride, as it were. And I think that's what they're hoping for. So you kind of want a safe pair of hands that's not going to rock the boat around that too much. And, and if you can put in the argument that she's got some training wheels on and is, is catching up with this industry and figuring out who they are and what they represent that kind of can stall that process a little bit longer Um, but I I do I do I think we might be mentioning it later but I do worry slightly for Channel 4 because this is going to make some more uncertainty for them because they never really got a fair answer as to what what the hell the Tory government want to do with them and and privatization
2: yeah well I mean you used to work for Channel 4 do you think people there now are thinking ah well privatization seems to be off the agenda Ed Vasey said on Radio 4 that it was all John Whittingdale's idea
0: i, I don 't I mean you know I, we, we are a supplier to Channel Four now, and i i don 't know if if the shows that we make would have just the same chance of getting on air if if the if channel Four was privatized i can 't see the shows some of the shows that we make at the moment for Channel Four appearing on channel Five for instance they 're sometimes a little bit too uh, what's the word niche or, uh, or or a bit off the cuff and sorry, not off the cuff. Um They're a little bit too niche or a, a bit too out there and and so we kind of celebrate Channel Four in, in giving us a chance in that space. We well, I, understand I the be... arguments
2: against it, but do you think Channel Four think all oh, new person in government? Hopefully, this won't happen now.
0: We just don't know. It's just it's just another level of uncertainty, but it doesn't feel like there is as much. Um, as much aggression, I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly as, as much of a push to, to kind of shake things up. I think the reality is, is as I've always said, we've got a good plurality in, in TV media in this country and, and that should continue.
1: I, I do feel we should sort of just, you know, have maybe a, a brief moment's silence for uh, Ed Vasey's passing, because you know, poor guy, how many times is he going to be passed over for that culture secretary <laughs> yeah. job and now he's out altogether? And, uh, he'll probably end up being director general in 20 years' time but and then, you know, he'll slam that, off then such a rare case of actually someone in DCMS for a long time who, who, cares? who is a dislikes so like, yeah. he's generally well liked, well respected, seems to get it Likes so, going obvious, to the theater. so obviously he was doomed <laughs> I mean, you know, like how many people do, do the arts, like how many ministers have sort of arts figures Ever actually sort of liked and felt wasn't a philistine, so may- maybe he went native. But well, I think no. that you
0: have to remember that he also supported Michael Gove and his and his uh, premiership quite quite strongly. And and he, you know, I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory about him being punished for that or whatever it might be. But but I do, you know, I, I was quite. Dis- that's the moment where I was a little bit disappointed with with, um, uh, with, with Ed kind of supporting somebody that that was going to have an impact on on an industry that that does trade abroad and and does you know need to have us being a. Uh, um, not, not as much as the torn country. Unless you're a newspaper, obviously. That that helps.
2: <laughs> Although maybe Michael Gove would have brought back his uh, sketch show with David Baddiel. I'd yeah. have liked to have seen that. That would really help television. I would <laughs> love to see the archives of that. I, I keep, I keep so meaning to YouTube to it. Is, it there, is there anything online? I, there is one three-minute clip and almost nothing else. And it was a full series. Yeah. I, I would love to Someone's see that show. Someone's got the tapes. Tweet us at The Media Podcast if you do. Uh, right, let's talk about current telly. Because in commissioning news, uh, this announcement... Leaps out. Dave have commissioned Avalon to build a John Oliver-style show for their channel. Uh, It's going to be hosted by Matt Ford, the comedian, former New Labour advisor, the guy who does the uh, Political Party podcast. Highly recommended if you don't listen. Uh, And it's going to aim to do for UK TV what Last Week Tonight has done for HBO. Now, for us, Avalon produced Last Week Tonight in the States, and it is a great show. And, you know, you watch it and you can kind of see what they've learnt in the UK from producing things like TV Burp as well, and they brought it over there. That said, knowing what Dave spends on TV budgets, I wonder whether you're going to have a team of sharp writers like they do on John Oliver's show being able to produce anything similar with Matt Ford.
0: Yes, so so Last Week Tonight is by far the best political satire show, certainly in the US, probably in the world right now. It is an excellent show, it's incredibly written and it's delivered by an absolute comic genius. This is a a difficult thing to do and it's not the first time it's been attempted. Uh, Marcus Brigstock, I think it was, had a show on BBC4 um, around, around political satire, where they were trying to do similar things that uh, The Daily Show and Jon Stewart were trying to do at the time, didn't really work. Um, our, our 10 o'clock live, of course, are, as well, on Channel 4. 10 o'clock live, and, and that, that didn't quite land as, as highly as I expected it to. And I, I think that the, the issue that we have here is that our political satire is different. Have I Got News For You is an amazing show. It's an incredible political satire show. I don't think the same sort of thing would work in the US, for instance. The, the US have a long heritage of Desk shows of, of one person sitting behind a desk and tearing apart politics and, and the media and, and it's been incredibly successful. They they have it on almost fifteen different news networks, well, not just news networks but broadcast networks, and it's it's you know great stuff. But you know, they also have a much, much more uh, polarizing media community. And and actually if you look at John Oliver. If you look at John Stewart, a lot of that is sending up what's going on on Fox News or what's going on on CNN or what's going on on news networks, and we don't have that here because we don't have the same, you know, this, this, uh, so politicized broadcast. Exactly, and yeah. I think I think that there's it's, it's going to be more of a struggle, and uh, and I think the thing around not being able to broadcast Prime Minister's Question Times as well, and, and that being a, being an issue. Um, means that there's going to be a, a lack of British material around this space. And yes,
2: talk us through that, James, because some listeners won't be aware of this because when Farras says you can't broadcast PMQs, they think, well, yes, you can, I watch it every Wednesday, but you, you can't broadcast it in a comedy context. It
1: is one of the most joyously stupid bits of British <laughs> legislation that has very little reason to still exist and almost no prospect of being changed. Um, I mean, I don't yeah, like the know... House of Lords, if, if what, people, politics? If people watch as much uh, politics as I do you'll know it took about three years for them to agree slightly better camera angles in the Commons Chamber now. You occasionally get to see almost at dispatch box level instead of always from above, which is quite nice, but that's a fixed position, and the MPs hated it. They were so against the introduction. They were tripping filmmakers, their cameramen, as they were doing it. Um you can only use footage from Parliament, anywhere in Parliament, including, I think, select committees, which, honestly, are comedy gold these days. <laughs> on box set, seriously. But you can only use it for anything that's deemed factual news or current affairs. You can't use it at all for comedy under the licensing rules. And, of course, this only applies on TV. It doesn't stop except boy or any one of the, you know, numerous other people messing with the footage online. But if you want to do anything on television, you just get no rights at all, no exceptions, no footage from Parliament. And given that that's where most of our set pieces happen, I mean, the clips that you would want to show this week, if you were Have I Got News For You or um, whatever the New Dave show's called would be Theresa May at the dispatch box sort of suddenly channelling Margaret Thatcher in Remind that terror it's, it's the most terrifying she slows down, she puts her notes down and leans in like I wonder how many times she practised that in the mirror that morning but that would be your shot and you that's, that is the political one liner of the week, you can't use it and so you're really going to struggle, unless you really make a gimmick of it, but you need some budget to do that, reshoot it with actors or... but. They're not going to have that they, kind of money. I mean, I just
2: take a very simple view on this. Isn't it just about budget? I'm going to rephrase my first question to you again. Isn't it the case that HBO chuck loads of money at, at John Oliver's shows and all those shows and they all get the smartest writers straight out of Harvard and that's all they do for a year? No one ever really properly, fully commits to that in the UK. That's why most of our political satire shows like this don't work.
0: Oh uh, Well, I mean, I would I'd push back on you and say the last leg. I, I think the last leg of the political satire show and that's also a, a, a talk show is is been a real triumph in in this space and and actually that's where the competition is here it's not actually you know John Oliver and um, Trevor Noah bless him Um, you know it is going to be the last leg and it is going to be have I got news for you so it is it is possible but if you look at like some great podcasts like including things like um answer me this and, and, and obviously <laughs> but you know you look at no such thing as a fish and, and it is possible to get, to get lo-fi comedy writers we do it very well in this country and, and generally we don't have writers rooms here we have one or two incredibly good strong um, comedians and, and strong writers that, that are able to kind of make it work so and I guess Newswipe is kind of the closest isn't it we've come yeah. to this kind of thing and Newswipe works, and that's, that's Charlie's head, and, and, um, and he, I think he only works for a couple of writers on that. There is, there is no um, sense of a, a big writer's room in this country. It, sometimes it causes problems. I think that Top Gear, for instance, needs a writer's room, um, and that's why that reboot hasn't really worked. But um, I, I think it's, uh, that there are a lot of good star talent that works in this country that, that doesn't need that because they know their own personality and they are very good at their comic timing.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Right, before we go, there is just time for our media quiz, this week entitled The Wheel of Misfortune, with apologies to Mark Radcliffe. Uh, On the wheel before me, uh, up here on the roof terrace, are the names of several people who work in the media, or should I say, work to, because they have recently had their job titles changed. Your job, friends, is to tell me which job they've left, and you get a bonus point if you know what they have planned next. Two spins each. The winner gets an all-inclusive holiday to the Dildoyne. The loser gets a staycation. Faraz, let's spin that wheel. Good spin, my goodness. That's going very, very fast. Uh, blue, red, pink. God, it's just a massive rainbow. Right, slowing down. Here we go. Any second now. And here we go. Question one. The wheel has landed on Colin Murray. Uh, so he's left TalkSport. Correct. Because it's been bought or it's it's had an investment from Oh,
1: Rupert it's Murdoch. working with The Sun, isn't it? It's got a partnership yeah.
2: with The Sun. Uh, yeah. he, according to Colin Murray's statement, he's leaving TalkSport because uh, a, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp has bought the parent company of TalkSport and Court Radio, the wireless company, and Colin Murray, in sort of solidarity with the people of uh, Liverpool over Hillsborough, says he will not work for News Corp. It's interesting, isn't it? It seems to me like this may have only just come about because it became clear the extent of the links between The Sun and Talk Radio and Talk Sport as a brand that they had planned. I mean, I, I, I wonder if it was just being owned by News Corp, whether he'd have such strong objections.
1: I mean, it's an obvious tie-up, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's quite a sensible thing to do if you're going to buy Talk Sport, is to join it up with The Sun. The Sun's been paying a fortune for online sports rights and doing nothing with them, really. I mean, it's, it's a clever tie-up, but I can see why you might want to walk away from it if you feel as Colin Murray does. So Fair play to him.
2: Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting as well to think if the Sun do heavily invest and decide to kind of uh, reboot the Sun radio. Do you remember Sun Talk with John Gaunt? It was very short-lived, wasn't it? It was. They spent a lot of money on those yeah. studios. They, they wanted to work in radio. Well, give Kel- Kelvin McKenzie something to do. He's, uh, he's had plenty <laughs> of time in radio. Gee, let's be honest, we would, we would occasionally listen to that show. It would be compelling, wouldn't it? What would he be wearing, though? That's <laughs> <what we're> wearing. <laughs> Full burka, please. Uh, right, uh, time for you to do a spin, James. Uh, big effort, please, uh, so, for us uh, a lot uh, of effort okay. in there. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, okay, here we go. We've got um, Graham. Yeah, um, right. Baroness Una King. What's the job she's left? So, and What's she planning to do?
1: So she's she's taking a little time away from uh, the House of Lords. Correct. She? She's managed just to say, you know, it's it's helpful that Jeremy Corbyn's leader at the moment because it makes it easier to stand aside. But um, she's um, off to Google, isn't she? Head of Diversity, which I, I think at is YouTube good, specifically. Oh yeah. yes, mm-hmm. I, I good hire, I think.
0: Yeah, no, she so, was head of diversity at Channel Four, wasn't she? For a yes, time, yes, she was head of diversity at Channel Four. Do you um, rate her for that? Yeah, I think I think that it was a good it was a good hire for Channel Four, and I think that she did a good job there. I'm I'm a little confused about this. I'll be honest because I don't really understand considering that YouTube don't make any of its own content, and well, I mean, there's a YouTube red stuff, but they, they don't really. Uh, this could be a move into that space I don't know but it's the, the platform has traditionally been democratised in a sense that anybody can upload anything to that so so maybe it is trying to find new communities to, to reach out to that platform but I think it's a little bit more abstract than her Channel 4 role in this sense well, well there's, there's sort of it's one of those sort of fake democratic things though they
1: Choose a lot of people to promote and bring in and feature in their own stuff and kind of promoting YouTube stars and helping them sort of find ways to monetize. They do quite a lot of quiet work with the big names, but then you know I wonder also if she'll have a bit of a role in the hiring diversity there because kind of Silicon Valley is pretty notoriously bad for it. Yeah. And you know you get the impression with with Una King that if if the, if they're looking for someone to help a token effort or to have them say that they're handling it I don't think she'd be that person I think she would probably call them out if they screw yeah. it up so it's, it seems a fairly bold hire for them
0: and I think it's quite useful to have somebody that's uh, so ingrained with the political establishment in the UK to uh, for YouTube to make that hire it may it may have some
2: uh, usefulness later on down the line oh sure. you cynic for us. Uh, ok would you like to spin the wheel again yes Very good. Uh, Okay, we're settling on Chris Evans. Uh, For Raz, what is the job he's left? I
0: I don't know, what was Chris Evans doing? (laughs) I'm
2: unaware of the job that
0: he had, and then he left. um Maybe, maybe he's got in his car and driven off, or he just got a taxi. Um, <laughs> yes, he's left Top Gear, he as, has. as if everybody in the world knows. Wasn't it on the, the BBC News at 10? It was that big of a story.
2: It was, like, yeah. It was, up, it was kind of actually the, the first post-Brexit story, almost. Just, Chris Evans' his left like, Top Gear, yeah. Yeah, so he's gone. Um, and Was it wise for to him to resign, to bearing in mind the BBC obviously yeah. weren't going to push him?
0: I think I think that he. I mean, I think fair play to him. I think that he recognised that it was it was becoming an uphill struggle. I think once the reaction to the first show came out, he, he had to turn it round. And I, I think that the more that people have looked at that show and what it. What it can be, the more they've looked at the secondary players and um, and who the, you know with Rory, um, even with Matt LeBlanc, it's you kind of it's it's been clear that actually it's not Chris that is shining through on that show. It's actually some of the secondary stars. So so fair play to him to kind of stepping aside and, and making sure that they get a fair shot because I think that's what that show needs. It needs some some new faces that we haven't seen presenting stuff on the BBC f- before, um, giving us a a
2: fresh set of eyes and fresh set of hands on the steering wheel, as it were. Okay, uh, well we're doing pretty well. You've both got your points. It's 3-2 uh, there to Faraz, because you did say that Chris is going to Radio 2, even though he's kind of staying in his old job, really. So three points to Faraz, two to James. It's it's all to play for in an entirely unmanufactured way. <laughs> time to spin the wheel <laughs> one final time, James. It's actually the sound of a motorbike going past, which does sound even more like a wheel than the sound effect we're using. Uh here goes. And it's landed on Roger Ailes. It's landed on Roger Ailes. Um, well, yes. I who mean, is he? A lot of people won't know who he so is. So
1: Roger Ailes is the guy who set up Fox News. I mean, the, the most powerful of Rupert Murdoch's lieutenants for his entire career. It's been the cash cow, it's been the influence peddler. Like, you just never, ever thought you would see the back of him. He He basically ran the Republican Party through his offices at Fox. Like, you cannot... There was just no way to say what a huge figure he was in US media. And he's gone. Um, And it's in the midst of um, a whole bunch of sexual harassment suits. And Fox has usually been so good at settling anything, just keeping everything out of the headlines. But one of the sort of on-air stars managed to sort of made a complaint publicly, filed it, and then lots and lots of other people piled on. And essentially... The sense had always been that Murdoch and Ailes didn't get on as well as they used to. And, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch in his very late 80s was trying to encourage this uh, man in his early 70s that it was time to retire. Um, And so there wasn't perhaps a huge degree of warmth about trying to ride this one out. But Ailes had some very, very good contractual clauses. He could have tried to take talent with him. He could have tried to do all sorts of things. And so... They seem to have negotiated an exit, and Ailes has uh, resigned. He'll be getting a um, decent
2: payoff, but he'll need it for the legal bills by the same. of it.
1: It's rumoured to be about $40 million, and I'd be very surprised if it didn't also come with legal indemnity so that Fox can now quietly settle any of these suits. Um, that would be what I would suspect, but, you know, he's, he's in his 70s. I suspect he will go and... Uh, Enjoy spending a bit of it and maybe uh, maybe a little bit of Republican Party consulting.
2: Which brings our grand total to 4-3. James, you've won the media quiz. I look forward to my lavish prize. You're as excited as a new executive at Fox News. Fair and balanced. <laughs> uh, that is our show for today. My thanks to you, James, and also to Faraz Osman. Uh, and hello to all you new listeners. Welcome. To the independent home of media comment. If you subscribe to this show, and if you're not doing that, why not? Uh, then you'll get this show every single fortnight as soon as it's released directly to your phone. You can do this via your podcast app on your iPhone, uh, or if you've got an Android phone, I'd recommend Pocket Casts. We're on Google Play as well now, should you use that. And subscribing means you never miss an episode, so go and do that now. This episode is dedicated to Brian Bromley, Matt Arnold, Harry Peak, and Donna McGorry, all of whom took the time to take out a voluntary subscription. In the words of Disraeli, I have a unusual sensation. If it is not indigestion, it must be gratitude. Join us. Keep us on the air at themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.